Father in heaven, this morning, it is our deepest desire that the worship that we have already offered was holy and pleasing and acceptable to you. Father, that's always our desire. And now as we open our Bibles, it's our desire that the things that we see will teach us. But Father, that desire is it's pointless if you don't do the teaching. So we're asking you to do that. I'm praying, Father, that you'll accept our invitation as you already have to be here through worship. Now, stay with us, Lord. Every one of us, wherever we're at, and show us what we need to see. And I pray, Father, that you'll stay right beside us even as we leave this place so that what we learn today will continue to grow within us to the point of inspiring us. I pray, Lord, that this will be nothing more than the planting of seeds, that your spirit will water them and pull the weeds around them so that they can grow deep and high. I pray, Father, that that we'll gain from this message what we need individually and as a church. And I'm asking that in Jesus' name and for your great glory. Amen. Tina and I have a nephew that is a social media influencer. He and his wife both are in an interesting turn of events. They make their living by building things that they sell on Etsy. Not big things, small things. So they have to build and sell a lot of them. That's what they do. But they also have a a huge, I don't mean small, I mean huge number of people that follow them on social media platforms. So many that they are actually paid for the things that they post. So they post regularly on different platforms. Advertisers paying them, people subscribing to their sites. It's really an interesting thing. People will pay them to do certain things on social media. It just blows my mind. There's this whole new movement of folks that are making a living just like that. They are influencing people through social media platforms. Now, I've known about that for a long time, but I've, I've always just kind of stayed distant from it. But since our nephew and his wife have been doing these things, I, I thought I ought to learn a little more about it. So I've been digging around, and what I've discovered is that some things that used to be reserved in the realm of influencing others for celebrities has now been transferred to the everyman. And it's intriguing to see what different experts have to say on the subject. So as I've been digging, I've found a number of different articles and blogs online that I just really kind of meshed together. That's the best way to say it. In a cut-and-paste effort, I took a bit or a piece from this article or this blog, and I put it together with some others. And, And so what I'm about to share with you is a conglomeration of all of those things. Internet soup if you will. That's, that's really what this is. I would give credit to the authors, but there's just too many of them. So let me just say, this isn't from me. It comes from these different internet sources, and, and I just want you to listen to this. Not very long at all. Here you go. Influencer marketing is a hot phenomenon that everyone is talking about. It's become a mainstream tactic and is no longer limited to a select few brands or agencies. Almost every major industry has seen a rise in the influencers. And brands are leveraging them now more than ever. In simple terms, influencers 
are social media personalities with a large number of loyal and engaged followers. The fans often regard these influencers as role models and follow their recommendations. Want to know why they're so influential? Owing to the accessibility of social media platforms, influencers are able to establish personal connections with their followers. Unlike traditional celebrities, their lives aren't shrouded in an air of mystery. Instead, influencers often reveal a glimpse of their personal lives to their followers. This is precisely what helps them establish friendly bonds with their fan base. Today, many people aspire to become influencers. It does seem like a lucrative career option and life choice for many people. However, behind all of the glitz and glamour of an influencer's social media profile, there lies a truckload of hard work and patience. Building and retaining a loyal fan following on social media isn't a cakewalk, and it is becoming increasingly difficult as more people are trying to become influencers. Thus, earning the trust of your followers is a painstaking task. It takes persistent effort on your part to make your content authentic and grab the attention of your audience. Now, I listened to that, most of it written by marketing experts, advertising experts, and I think they believe that this whole movement is brand new. They believe that, that social media has given rise to it. But as I've made my way through these articles and these blogs, what I quickly realized is this thing that they are trying to credit to pop culture actually comes from the Bible. Jesus is the one who created the whole idea of it. Jesus is the one who set the table for people to become influencers. It didn't start with social media, not at all. It started in the Bible. Let me show you what I mean. If you have your Bible with you, open to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, verse 13. This is found in the Sermon on the Mount, not very far into the Sermon on the Mount, actually. Matthew 5, verse 13. Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now that's influencing. That's Jesus' teaching on the whole subject. You've already heard me say, but let me say it again. This whole movement, it didn't begin with social media. It didn't begin there at all. It began in Scripture. It began with Jesus teaching the church to do the same thing, to influence people. However, this writing in Matthew chapter 5 seems almost so theoretical that it is impractical. When you look at the metaphors like salt, city on a hill, light of the world, and so on, it seems so theoretical that there's no way that we can boil it down to something that we actually believe that we can do. So we skip right over it. But pay attention to the end of the whole teaching, at least this section of it, when Jesus says this type of living is born out of a desire to bring glory to God. If that desire is there, then the ability to do it is there. That comes through the Holy Spirit. That comes through a relationship with the Lord. 
Oh, God designed this whole movement. God put it into play some 2,000 years ago and probably even before that. I already said that one of the intriguing things about this movement of social media influencers is that what used to belong to celebrities now belongs to the everyday person. And it's really quite unique why that is. In the article that we read just a few minutes ago or that conglomeration of articles, they made this statement. Unlike traditional celebrities, their lives, meaning social media influencers, aren't shrouded in an air of mystery. They go on to further define that like this. Influencers often reveal a glimpse of their personal lives to their followers. What's making this so powerful, what's making this movement redefine advertising and marketing can be boiled down to one word, openness. These social media influencers are being open to a certain extent, they're being open. As I've dug through some different things, just trying to understand it, to wrap my mind around this whole trend, what I've discovered is that those that are following different influencers are doing it because they're not just seeing the celebrity of these people's lives, the victories, the high points. One of the reasons that celebrities were so powerful in the realm of influencing for so long is they had this Camelot type of life, and people aspired to it. They wanted to experience just a little bit of that. But these social media influencers, realizing that there has to be more to that, show not only their victories. They're not just showing their high points. They're showing their struggles and their challenges. They're showing that they're not perfect, that not everything is a victory in life. Remember me saying that this all started in the Bible? Well, that exact idea is from the beginning to the end of Scripture. People that have great influence show their openness. They show their struggles, their challenges, not just their victories. Let's skip a rock across the top of the Bible like you would across a body of water and, and see what we can see. Let's look for some of the ripples. We'll start with a person like Abraham. Abraham told some lies, some whoppers. That's kind of who he was. You get into Moses, you find out that he had a problem with speech. David had a bigger problem with a lady named Bathsheba. Changed everything in the kingdom. We can jump to the New Testament where we'll discover Peter. Peter denied Christ. Entire section of Scripture is given to that. The Apostle Paul was a bit of a hothead and John Mark walked off the job into relative obscurity until Barnabas went and found him and brought him back into service of the Lord. A lot of the openness of Scripture shows that God over and over and over and over and over again uses flawed people. He really does. Flawed people are some of God's favorite people. Those flaws are referred to as sin in Scripture. Jesus died on the cross for those flaws, for those sins that we might be redeemed and invited into the kingdom of God in such a way that the Lord says, I'm going to give you specific gifts. Use them in my kingdom. Use them along with everybody else to do something miraculous, to influence the world, to influence the world. 
When people understand that, when they recognize that, that even in their flaws, and they can be open about those flaws, when we realize that, what we discover is a generosity that flows out of us that is defined by the word influence. We're in a study right now out of John chapter 10, verse 10, out of the abundant life, the the study, the sermon series is titled, Living Biblical Generosity Through the Abundant Life. Only we are spelling life as an acronym, just like this, with a period after each letter and each letter standing for something different. Labor, influence, finances, experiences. Well, today we're on number two, this idea of influence. Well, when we understand all of these things about the influence that we can have, even through our redeemed flaws, then this generosity that flows from us touches everyone in our vertical relationships, but the beautiful part of it, in our horizontal relationships, the beautiful part of it is it is vertical. It directs people to God. When you use your influence in the right way as a believer in Jesus Christ, as a Christian, then everything becomes vertical. It's about giving glory to God. That's what Matthew chapter 5 was telling us. When that desire is in place, when we are really seeking to glorify the Lord by all that we're doing, we have spiritual influence. Oh, it's amazing. But let me give you this warning. It may cost you. It will cost you. That type of influence may very well cost you dearly. That's just part of it. And I want to show you that from the life of a man in Scripture that I know you are familiar with. If you've been a student of the Bible very long at all, you're familiar with him. Even if you have not been a student of the Bible and you are new to Christianity, maybe not even new to Christianity, you're still seeking a relationship with Jesus. You know this man, and you know his story. You're in Matthew chapter 5. Just turn back a few chapters to the left, to Matthew chapter 1. Let's just jump right into his story. Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit." She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Would you go back to verse 19? Let your eyes come to rest on that verse one more time. In fact, let your eyes come to rest on at least two words in that verse. Here they are. And her husband Joseph being a, here's the two words, just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Now, I don't just want you to let your eyes come to rest on those two words right now. Let me encourage you to highlight them or underline them. Make them stand out in your Bible. Because there is a depth of teaching in those two words that once you see it, you will not be able to unsee it. You may not see the words just man if you're reading from the New American Standard version of the Bible. This is the way that reads, a righteous man. 
Or if you're reading in the NIV, you may see devoted to the law. There are different terms that fit that phrase, just man. So whatever it is in your Bible, draw a line underneath it, highlight it, circle it, whatever you have to do. And then let me encourage you to draw a line to the margin of your Bible and write the Hebrew word for that expression. Now you have to understand that what you're reading in the book of Matthew would have been written in Greek, but in the Hebrew translation of it, one word captures this, and that's why we have these different translations. English Standard Version, New International Version, New American Standard Version, and so on. This is why we get some of these translation issues. But in the Hebrew, we have one word for it. This is it. Now, I'm going to do my best to pronounce that for you. I'm not an expert in the, the original languages at all, so if I stumble across it, give me the grace to stumble. Here it is, Sadiq. In Hebrew, that is Sadiq. I was doing some studying for this and came across some teaching from a man named Scott Knight. He is a PhD in theology and biblical studies, and his writing, his research on Sadiq is so incredible that I have to share it with you this morning. I don't do this very often. For good reason, I don't do this very often, but I'm going to read to you for the next six minutes. It takes about six minutes to do this. And let me just encourage you to stay with me all the way through. Because like I say, once you see this, you will not be able to unsee it. And it will open up for you some understanding in Scripture that is just mind-blowing. So this comes from Dr. Scott McKnight. Listen close. Matthew says that Joseph was a righteous man. In Hebrew, the term is sadiq. That's not just an adjective for someone. By calling Joseph a righteous man, Matthew's not simply saying that Joseph was a good man or a moral man or even a God-fearing man. Sadiq in Matthew's day was a formal label, an official title. Sadiq was a term that applied to those rare people who studied and learned and practiced the Torah scrupulously. Sadiqs believed the Jewish law was the literal word of God as dictated to Moses and therefore believed the Torah should be applied to every nook and cranny of life. When Matthew tells you that Joseph was one of those rare elite Sadiqs, Matthew tells you everything you need to know to unlock this story. Because when Matthew tells you that Joseph was a Sadiq, he's telling you, for example, that Joseph wore phylacteries, little boxes of scripture against his head and around his arm. When Matthew tells you that Joseph was a righteous man, he's telling you that Joseph wore a prayer shawl at all times, a shawl with tassels hanging from every corner, each tassel a tangible reminder of all the commands of God. When Matthew tells you Joseph was a Sadiq, he's telling you that Joseph had a long, never-trimmed beard, a beard that would fill me with envy, a beard that would set him apart as different and holy. Joseph was a Sadiq which means there were specific things Joseph did and did not do. As a Sadiq, Joseph covered his right eye and prayed the Shema twice a day. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And as a Sadiq, you can bet Joseph had a copy of this prayer rolled up and nailed to his doorpost. If Joseph was a Sadiq, then he gave out of his poverty to the temple treasury. He traveled the 91 miles from Nazareth to Jerusalem every Yom Kippur to have a scapegoat bear his sins away. He practiced his piety before others to remind them that God had called them to be perfect 
as God is perfect. Joseph was a righteous man, Matthew says, meaning there were specific things he did and did not do. He did not violate the Sabbath, no matter what, because God created man for the Sabbath, for the glory of God. And as a Sadiq, Joseph did not eat unclean food. For that matter, as a Sadiq, Joseph did not eat with unclean people. When Matthew tells you that Joseph was a righteous man, he's telling you that Joseph was one of the rare few people who could be called righteous because they lived the righteous law of God to the letter. In Israel, in Matthew's day, after being a priest, there was no greater honor than being given the title Sadiq. And that's the incredibly complicated dilemma that Matthew hides behind the word Sadiq. Because this Sadiq is engaged to a woman named Mary, and she's pregnant, and he's not the father. He's a Sadiq. You see, in Mary and Joseph's day, betrothal was a binding legal contract. Only the wedding ceremony itself remained. Mary and Joseph weren't simply fiancés. For all intents and purposes, they were husband and wife. They were already bound together. For that reason, according to Torah, unfaithfulness during the engagement period was considered adultery. Actually, according to the Mishnah, which is Jewish commentary on the Torah, infidelity during betrothal was thought to be a graver sin than infidelity during marriage. Matthew tells you that Joseph is a Sadiq, betrothed to an adulteress. As a Sadiq, Joseph knows what the Torah now requires of him. Joseph can't simply forgive Mary and forget. Only God can forgive sin. No matter how much Joseph might love Mary, his love of God must trump his love of neighbor. They're not equivalent. According to the book of Deuteronomy, Joseph must take Mary to the door of her father's house, accuse her publicly of adultery, and say to her, I condemn you. And if she does not protest or deny the accusation, the priest and elders of Nazareth will stone her to death on her father's front porch. That's what the Torah commands. Of course, if Mary does protest, if she denies that she's sinned, if she's foolish enough to tell people something as ridiculous as her child being conceived by the Holy Spirit, then Joseph, as a Sadiq, certainly knows what course of action the Torah requires, the ritual of bitter waters. According to the book of Numbers, Joseph is commanded to take Mary before a priest, bringing an offering of barley with them, about two quarts worth. After offering the barley upon the altar, the priest will compel Mary to stand before the Lord. The priest will pour holy water into a clay jar. Then the priest will sweep up the dirt from the synagogue floor and pour it into the jar of water. Then the priest will write and read out the accusation against her, and Mary will be compelled to say, Amen, Amen. Finally, the priest will take the accusation and the ink in which it was written and mix them into the water, and then command Mary to drink it, the bitter waters. If it makes her sick, she's guilty and she'll be stoned to death. If somehow it does not make her ill, then she's innocent. Her life will be spared. Though in Mary's case, her life still will be ruined because she's pregnant and Joseph's not the father. She will be considered a sinner. And as a Sadiq, someone who lives the Torah inside and out, Joseph certainly knows he'll be considered a sinner too if he marries Mary. He'll be a Sadiq no more. On the other hand, if he does anything other than anything less than what the Torah commands, he will be a Sadiq no more. He will lose his status as quickly as though it were emptied and poured out from him. But that's what Joseph chooses to do. Matthew says in verse 19 that Joseph resolved to, 
But Matthew leaves it to us to imagine just how long it must have taken Joseph to come to that decision. And it's not like Joseph's happy about it. That word in verse 20 that your Bibles translates considered can mean to ponder as in to consider or it can mean to become angry. It's the same word Matthew uses in chapter 2 to describe King Herod's anger at learning the Magi have escaped him. It's the same word Luke uses to describe how the congregation in Nazareth responds to Jesus' first sermon right before they try to kill him. So it's not like Joseph is happy about it, but still Joseph decides to violate the Torah by refusing to condemn Mary. Joseph ignores his obligation as a Saudi, but as he worked his way through it, He came to a place where he was willing to choose his influence over his reputation. He chose his influence over his reputation. And that influence is felt some 2,000 years later. People still know about him. People still know this side of his story and what he chose to do. It cost him dearly. It cost him his reputation, his standing in the community, many of his relationships. Some might even tell you his home. cost him his community. But he chose to do that because it was right. He chose to do that at great expense. Joseph's choice unto influence. Interestingly, one of the things McKnight teaches us is that Joseph had to work his way through it to the point of the no mores. To the point of the no mores. And when we talk about influence in Christ costing us dearly, it leads us to that place, to the place of the no mores. Two different times in what we just went through, Scott McKnight said he would be Sadiq no more. If he did this, he would be a Sadiq no more. Or if he made this choice, he would be a Sadiq no more. And he made that choice. He made that choice. And that is required for every believer if we are going to choose influence in the kingdom. That we want that generosity flowing out of us in such a way that we touch all the horizontal relationships around us with the glory of God, but we draw them unto a vertical relationship with Him. It requires us to work our way through to the no mores. And they can be different for everybody. But make no mistake about this, Jesus Himself teaches that this is required. Let's go from the book of Matthew to the Gospel of Luke. And I'll show it to you. Luke chapter 14. Again, Jesus is the teacher here. Now I can't help but wonder, when he was saying these words, if he wasn't thinking about his dad, his earthly father. Lay that over the top of this. Lay Joseph over the top of this. And listen close. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, this is verse 25, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish it, 
all who see it will begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. What Jesus is really teaching is that in discipleship, in the pursuit of a relationship, ongoing, growing relationship with him, there is a cost that has to be considered. It's a calculated cost, and everybody has to make it. For some people, that, that's relational. For other people, it's material. For some, it might be occupational, but there's a cost. Jesus is saying you, you have to work your way through that. You have to consider that. You don't have any other choice because you see in Christ, you cannot have one foot with Him and one foot in the world. It doesn't work that way. You can't live in both places. After 30 years of ministry, I've seen people that have tried it, and here's what I know happens. When we are living both in Christ and in the world, when we have not counted the cost of discipleship, when the Word of God and the will of God and the teaching of God conflicts with the things that we want within the world, the majority of people run to the world. They don't run to Christ. They abandon. When the going gets tough, they abandon. That's illustrated in the New Testament. We've already talked about this. Do you remember that in the book of Acts, the first church, the early church, consisted of 120 people? 120 people. Not looking at all the other math within the four Gospels, there were 9,000 people that were fed by Jesus, miraculously by Jesus. But when the free food stopped, there were only 120 people left. There were only 120 people left. Where were the others? There were crowds, crowds of people when Jesus descended into Jerusalem as he made his way in right before the crucifixion, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. There are more than 120. Where were they? Where were they? Because the book of Acts says 120. But those 120 people, my word, in a matter of days, in just a matter of days after they gathered together, because of their influence, their choice to count the cost of discipleship, that number grew to 3,120 like that. And then as you go on through the book of Acts, thousands of people were added to the number. And as you make your way through the book of Acts, the people that chose influence in the kingdom of God carried the gospel out of Jerusalem into the distant lands. And today, 2,000 years later, the church stands strong. Billions and billions of people have come to know the Lord because of the influence of the original 120 who were saying it isn't about us anyway, it's about Jesus. And vertically they directed people to their Lord and Savior, but make no mistake, they counted the cost of it. And the juice was worth the squeezing. Happy to do it because the effect of what they did last 2,000 years later, the church continues. That's how the church will continue, because people make this decision. Back in Luke chapter 14, we find this interesting word, and it, it comes with kind of an exclamation point that Jesus would put behind all of this teaching. Listen to it again. Verse 33, 
So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Now that's Jesus even thinking about his dad, thinking about what he would do, that he would give all of himself. Been on this earth living as a man 30 years. For the last three years of his life, everybody turned against him. Last three years of his life, even his family didn't believe in him. His brothers and sisters mocked him. It'd be easy to say he didn't even have a place to lay his head. He went into his hometown of Capernaum, his adult hometown of Capernaum, did few miracles because they didn't believe in him. But Jesus did all of that for us, renounced everything. Everything he had, trained as a carpenter, he lost his occupation, his home, his family, everything. And he says to us, you've you got to do the same. You've got to make that choice too. That's discipleship. You have to make that choice. Because when the world conflicts with Scripture, you have to know where you're going to stand. And if all we want is a relationship with God for what he will do for us, that is no relationship one-sided at best. He wants us to have more. Oh, my friends, the juice is worth the squeezing. It really is. So make the right choice. And it begins with this word, renounce. Renounce. Usually when we see that, we'll make a material or a physical application of it. Money, family, occupation, so on. But there is a deeper meaning than just the physical and the material. There's an emotional meaning to renounce as well. Jesus starts out this whole discourse in the realm of the emotional, not the physical. So we need to get back to it as well so we see the emotional application of it. The emotional application of the word renounce says that the things that we possess will no longer possess us. We're going to let that go. That's what it means to renounce those. The things that we possess will no longer possess us because we belong to Christ. And we want our influence to be with him. We want our influence to matter in the kingdom for all eternity. We want our influence to be with him. Oh, it is worth it. It is worth it. What social media thinks they started, boy, it came right out of the Bible and Christianity. It really did. Everyday people using their lives, the high points and the low points to influence people under the kingdom of God. As we invite people to, to come into our lives through openness to see what the Lord has done for us. That's the way it works. And our influence then, when it's combined with everybody else's, does something amazing. It makes up the church that has stood all these years. That's so cool. That is so cool that that was God's design. When we talk about church membership, and we do at Libby Christian Church, we talk about church membership and we encourage people to make a public identification with the body so that you can place your life and listen, your influence with a local body. Church membership is that place where we move from just saying Libby Christian Church is the church I go to to being able to say Libby Christian Church is my church. I'm part of it. Things get difficult. I can't just walk away. I know that I'm surrounded by other believers and in openness we know one another's flaws but we're in it together to influence, to influence people vertically unto the glory of God. That's what church membership's about. That's what church membership's about. We invite immersed believers to publicly identify that way to say, I'm in with the church because you've already publicly identified through baptism with Christ. So identify with the church and say, I'm in, I'm in. 
Let's all do this together unto the glory of God. Wow, powerful things happen. I could keep going because like I said, by Friday night, all I wanted to do was just say, God said it, I believe it, that settles it, let's go home. By Saturday night, I found a good wind in this message. So I I could keep going. We're just going to stop there. I want to encourage you to think about your influence, what you do with it, how you use it. And hopefully you will land in a place where you say, I want my influence to generously lead people to a vertical relationship with God unto his glory, no matter what, no matter what. I've counted the cost and I'm in. Why don't you stand and pray with me? Father in heaven, I am so happy that everybody's here today. I'm happy, Lord, that we have the saints with us. People that have worshipped you and served you a long, long time and their life is defined by you. I'm so happy they're here. I'm happy, Lord, that we have those that that are pursuing deeper relationship with you. God, I'm, I'm glad they're here. I'm glad we have those that are seeking relationship with you. I pray they find it. I'm glad, Lord, that we have some that I just don't even know why they're here. But I'm glad they are. I pray they find you. And I'm glad that you are here with us. Father, early on, I ask you to meet us all right where we're at. I'm grateful that you did. That's such a beautiful promise of Scripture. So thank you for meeting us right where we're at. And I pray, Father, that you uh, able to see what our needs are in the realm of influence. And as we do, I pray you will inspire us and stir us through your Spirit to do what we need to do unto generous use of our influence to lead others to you. Let it be a lifestyle choice for us, no matter what the cost. But Father, I'd I'd be remiss to not thank you for paying the ultimate cost for each of us. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.